Episode one of Book of Basketball 2.0 is brought to you by State Farm. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Some players end up in the Hall of Fame pyramid. Some of them don't. But many times, we never expect who made it. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. You know what I never expected? Working on a sequel to my 704-page book of basketball 10 years later. You know what else I never expected? That the sequel would be a podcast and not a book. Again, life, unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining your home and auto insurance and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. We're also brought to you by one of the last good websites, theringer.com, as well as the Ringer Podcast Network, which is where you can find the Bill Simmons Podcast, the Rewatchables, Binge Mode, Ryan Rossillo, David Chang, nearly 30 terrific Ringer podcasts, including our newest one. This one, my name is Bill Simmons. Here we go. Before the book of basketball and Grantland and the ringer and 30 for 30 and the BS podcast and everything else over the last 12 years, I only wrote sports columns for ESPN.com and that's it. That was back in the days when my fingers actually worked. I love two things the most, writing about the NBA, poking fun at people in sports. And in 2007, Isaiah Thomas was literally perfect for me. I gleefully chronicled every foible as he spent four solid years running the Knicks right into the ground. For what I did for a living, Isaiah jokes were easier than making fun of Justin Bieber at a celebrity roast. The degree of difficulty was a 0.0. A few weeks after I made him the star of a column called The Atrocious GM Summit, Isaiah went on Stephen A. Smith's radio show and threatened trouble, quote unquote, if he ever ran into me on the street. So when we bumped into each other in Las Vegas one summer later, that was probably my number one draft pick and the holy shit, this is going to be awkward draft. But it happened. He probably would have popped me, except the announcer, Gus Johnson, was there. Yeah, that Gus Johnson. Gus loved both of us. He wouldn't accept any bitterness. He made us hash it out. Isaiah and I sat in the shade near a topless pool with the wind, which is a whole other story. We spent 30 minutes settling on an uneasy truce about Isaiah's ghastly job performance, and it was ghastly. Here's the thing. As long as we're talking basketball, I honestly can get along with anyone. Logan Paul, Ellen DeGeneres, Lee Harvey Oswald, doesn't matter. Isaiah and I, we loosened up, especially when we started remembering those unforgettable Celtics-Pistons clashes in the 80s. Remember those teams? They wanted to destroy each other. They really did. They wanted to destroy each other. We missed those days. We felt passionate enough about it that we were actually enjoying the conversation. I was getting comfortable. Comfortable enough that I had to ask him about the secret. And here's where I won Isaiah over. Not that I asked about the secret, but that I remembered it in the first place. Isaiah's Detroit teams collapsed in consecutive springs against the 87 Celtics and the 88 Lakers, two of the most excruciating NBA defeats of all time. All these years later, you remember him by just a couple words. Bird steel, sprained ankle. That's it. 
The 89 Pistons regrouped for their first championship, vindicating a controversial in-season trade that shipped Adrian Dantley in a draft pick to Dallas for Mark Aguirre. That season actually lives on all these years later in Cameron Stoth's superb book, The Franchise, which you should get on eBay, which details how GM Jack McCloskey built those particular Pistons teams. The book's crucial section happens during the 89 finals with Isaiah improbably offering up the secret of winning basketball to a crew of clueless reporters. They were very clueless back then. Here's an edited for space version of what Isaiah told them. Quote, when I first came here, McCloskey took a, a lot of heat for drafting a small guy. That was Isaiah. But he knew that the only way our team would rise to the top would be by mental skills, not size or talent. He knew the only way we could acquire those skills was by watching the Celtics and Lakers because those were the teams winning year in and year out. I also looked at Seattle, who won one year, and Houston, who got to the finals one year. They both self-destructed the next year. So how come? I read Pat Riley's book, Showtime, and he talks about the disease of more, quote unquote. A team wins it one year, and the next year, every player wants more minutes, more money, more shots, and it kills them. Our team has been up at the championship level four years now. We could have easily self-destructed. So I read what Riley was saying and I learned. I didn't want what happened to Seattle and Houston to happen to us. But it's hard not to be selfish. The art of winning is complicated by statistics, which for us becomes money. But you got to fight that, find a way around it. And I think we have. If we win this, we'll be the first team in history to win it without a single player averaging 20 points. We got 12 guys who are totally committed to winning. Every night, we found a different person to win it for us. And then he says, talk to Larry Bird about this once. A couple years back at the All-Star game, we were sitting signing basketballs and I'm talking to him about Red Auerbach in the Boston franchise and just picking his brain. I don't know if he knew I was picking his brain, but I think he knew because I asked one question and he just looked at me smiled, didn't answer, end quote. All right, well, what the hell did that mean? A few pages later, with the Pistons on the cusp of sweeping the Lakers, Isaiah ranted to reporters about Detroit's perceived lack of respect from the outside world. Quote, look at our team statistically. We're one of the worst teams in the league. So now you have to find a new formula to judge basketball. There were a lot of times I had my doubts about this approach. Statistically, it made me look horrible. But I kept looking at the one loss record and how he kept improving. And I kept saying to myself, Isaiah, you're doing the right thing. So be stubborn. One day people will find a different way to judge a player. They won't just pick up the newspaper and say, oh, this guy was nine for 12 with eight rebounds. So he was the best player in the game. Lots of times on our team, you can't tell who the best player in the game was because everybody did something good. That's what makes us so good. The other team has to worry about stopping eight or nine people instead of two or three. It's the only way to win. And then he says it again, the only way to win. That's the way the game was invented, but there's more to that. You also got to create an environment that won't accept losing, end quote. All right. Forget for a second that in too many monologues, Isaiah Thomas just described everything you'd ever need to know about winning an NBA championship. And forget that Isaiah's sacrifice would cost him historically. 
Right now, there are a number of nerds out there who believe he wasn't as good as Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook. FYI, he was better. You know why? Because Isaiah gave up those extra five to six points a game. And he never cared, ever, that 30 years later, you might use that decision against him because the stupid PER wasn't high enough. Forget all that. For nearly 20 years, I always wanted to know what the secret was. What the hell is the secret? So here we are in Vegas. It's 2007 summer. It's 110 degrees outside. We're in Tapas Pool. And I asked him, what was the secret? Isaiah smiled. I could tell he was impressed. He took a dramatic pause. He could even say he milked the moment. The secret of basketball, he told me, is that it's not about basketball. Hmm. The secret of basketball is that it's not about basketball. That makes no sense. How could that possibly make sense? Well, for the next few minutes, Isaiah explained it to me. The chemistry for the 89 Pistons was off for reasons that had nothing to do with talent. Chuck Daly needed to give Dennis Rodman more playing time. Rodman was in his third year at that point. Only the teacher, Adrian Dantley's nickname, wasn't willing to accommodate him. Rodman could play any style and defend every type of player. He gave the Pistons unique flexibility only once Rodman started stealing crunch time minutes from Danley. The teacher started sulking. He even complained to a local writer about it. You couldn't call it a betrayal, but Danley had undermined an altruistic dynamic constructed carefully over the past four seasons, almost like a stack of Jenga blocks that hinged on players forfeiting numbers for the overall good of the team. The Pistons quickly swapped him for the enigmatic Aguirre, an unconventional low-post scorer who wouldn't start trouble because Isaiah, a childhood chum from Chicago, would never allow it. If the Pistons didn't make that deal, they wouldn't have won the 1989 Finals. Maybe Dantley was a better player, but Aguirre was a better fit. It was a people trade. It wasn't a basketball trade. And that's what Isaiah learned while following those Lakers and Celtics teams around. It wasn't about basketball. Those teams were loaded with talented players, sure. That's not the only reason they won. They won because they liked each other. They knew their roles. They ignored statistics. They valued winning over everything else. They won because their best players sacrificed to make everyone else happy. They won as long as everyone remained on the same page. And by that same token, they lost if any of those factors weren't in place, which is a recurring theme in NBA history. When Pat Riley wrote about the disease of more, which Isaiah mentioned earlier, his most memorable note was that success is often the first step toward disaster, his quote. Riley believed the 1981 Lakers shifted into a more selfish mode after they won in 1980. Everyone wanted more money, more playing time, more recognition, more, more, more. They lost perspective. They stopped doing the little things that make teams win and keep winning. Guess what happened? They lost in round one to Moses Malone in Houston. That was it. So much for defending the title. But this is what happens. The 77 Blazers, they fell apart because of Bill Wallen's cursed feet, but also because Lionel Hollins and Maurice Lucas brooded about their salaries as detailed in my favorite sports book of all time, Breaks of the Game. The 79 Sonics, they fell apart when DJ and Gus, Dennis Johnson and Gus Williams, became embroiled in a petty battle over salaries and crunch time shots. That happened in 1980. The 83 Celtics, they got swept by Milwaukee for a peculiar reason. They had too many good players. Everyone wanted to play. Nobody was happy. Year after year, as Isaiah was learning how to win, at least one contender fell short. 
for reasons that had little or nothing to do with basketball. And year after year, a champion prevailed because everyone committed to their roles. That's what Detroit needed to do in 1989. And that's why the teacher had to go. So that's the secret, Isaiah told me. It's not about basketball. The secret of basketball is that it's not about basketball. How does that make sense? Well, here's the irony. Even Isaiah didn't totally understand this. Remember when he took over the Knicks? How could such a savvy, sophisticated winner like Isaiah become such a terrible executive with the Knicks? Why did Isaiah place his franchise's fate in the hands of Stephon Marbury, one of the league's most selfish stars? Why give away two potential lottery picks for Eddie Curry, then compound the mistake by overpaying him? What made you believe Zach Randolph and Eddie Curry could play together or Steve Francis and Stephon Marbury? How could someone learn the secret and then still screw it up? I've been obsessed with that question ever since. Year after year, 80% of NBA decision makers at least ignore the secret or talk themselves into it not mattering that much. Why? We measure players by numbers. And yet the playoffs roll around and teams that play together kill themselves defensively, sacrifice personal success, and ignore statistics, invariably win the title. We just watched that with the 2019 Raptors. Remember game seven against Philly? Kawhi took 39 shots. Wasn't a great statistical game. He did what he had to do. Do you think he cared he was taking 39 shots? No. We also watched it happen with San Antonio for much of this century. Remember those guys? Well, when you examine how Greg Popovich and R.C. Buford handled the Duncan era, it's honestly no different than McCloskey building those Pistons teams. In fact, Popovich explained their philosophy in 2009 by saying, we get guys who want to do their job and go home and aren't impressed with the hoopla. This is his quote. One of the keys is to bring in guys who have gotten over themselves. They either want to prove that they can play in this league or they want to prove nothing. They fill their role. They have a pecking order. We have three guys who are the best players and everyone else fits around them. End quote. Again, he said that in 2009, he won the title five years later with the same philosophy. In a related story, Tim Duncan's teams won 70% of their games for his entire prime and extended prime. Oh yeah, you can look it up. Can you keep stats for best chemistry and most tangible and consistent effect on a group of teammates? Yeah, we call them wins. And yet nine out of 10 basketball fans probably think Shaquille O'Neal had a better career than Tim Duncan. Spoiler alert, he did not. That's why we struggle to comprehend professional basketball. It's not just about talent and stats. You can only play five players at a time. They can only play 240 minutes total. How those players coexist, how they make each other better, how they accept their portion of that 240-minute pie, how they trust and believe in one another, how they create shots for one another, how that talent, salary, alpha dog hierarchy falls into place. My friends, that is basketball. Two of my favorite basketball books, and actually two of my favorite sports books, Second Wind by Bill Russell, Life on the Run by Bill Bradley, both books described what it's like to play for a famously magnanimous team. And both of those guys described their inner workings better than anyone ever has. Bradley wrote in his book, quote, a team championship exposes the limits of self-reliance, selfishness, and irresponsibility. One man alone can't make it happen. In fact, the contrary is true. A single man can prevent it from happening. The success of the group assures the success of the individual, but not the other way around. The human closeness of a basketball team cannot be reconstructed on a larger scale. End quote. 
Here's what Russell wrote in his book. Quote, our performance depended on individual excellence and how well we worked together. The Celtics played together because we knew it was the best way to win, end quote. Bradley adds, I believe that basketball, when a certain level of unselfish team play is realized, can serve as a kind of metaphor for ultimate cooperation. It's a sport where success, as symbolized by the championship, requires that the dictates of the community prevail over selfish personal impulses. An exceptional player is simply one point on a five-pointed star. Statistics can never explain the remarkable interaction that takes place on a successful pro team. End quote. Here's what Russell wrote. Star players have an enormous responsibility beyond their statistics. The responsibility to pick their team up and carry it. I always thought that the most important measure of how good a game I'd played was how much better I'd made my teammates play. End quote. All right, so in different ways, Russell and Bradley argued the same point. Players should be measured by their ability to connect with other players and not just their numbers. Sound familiar from Isaiah from, from earlier? Anyone can connect with their teammates for one season. Find that connection, cultivate it, win the title, maintain that connection, survive the inevitable landmines, fight off hungrier foes, keep returning for more success. That's being a champion. Here's how Russell explained it. Quote, it's much harder to keep a championship than to win one. After you've won once, some of the key figures are likely to grow dissatisfied with the role they play. So it's harder to keep the team focused on doing what it takes to win. Man, it sounds like he created the disease of more before Pat Riley did. Anyway, here's more from Russell. Also, you've already done it. So you can't rely on the same drive that makes people climb mountains for the first time. Winning isn't new anymore. There's a temptation to believe that the last championship will somehow win the next one automatically. You have to keep going out there game after game. When you find someone who at age 30 or 35 has the motivation to overrule that increasing pain and aggravation, you have a champion, end quote. All right, so how do you keep it going after winning a title and the riches that go with it? We just heard from Russell, we heard from Bradley, we heard from Isaiah. Let's hear from a hockey player, former Montreal goalie Ken Dryden, who won a few Stanley Cups. Here's how he explained it. Quote, winning becomes a state of mind, an obligation, expectation, in the end, an attitude, excellence. It's a rare chance to play with the best, to be the best. When you have it, you don't want to give it up. It's not easy. And it's not always fun. When you win as often as we do, you earn a right to lose. It's losing to remember what winning feels like. That's fucking awesome. But it's a game of chicken. If you let it go, you might never get it back, end quote. Russell lived for that game of chicken, defining himself and everyone else by how they responded to it. Here's what he wrote. Heart in champions has to do with the depth of your motivation and how will your mind and body react to pressure. It's concentration. That is being able to do what you do under maximum pain and stress, end quote. I'm gonna say those words again. Maximum pain and stress. That could have been the name of this podcast. But when a team of talented players put the team ahead of themselves, they become unstoppable for one season. When they keep doing it over a few years and sublimate their egos for the greater good, that's when they become fascinating in a historical context. Take the 2017 Warriors who understood the secret during Kevin Durant's first season better than anybody. They went 83 and 17, almost swept the playoffs. They had the three best shooters in the league. It's probably the greatest goddamn offensive team of all time. 
Here's how KD described it in January of that 2017 season on my podcast. I think we're a good team because it's like, when you look at it, we don't have like the, a lot of people call like Draymond and Clay like superstars, right. Steph, me, superstars. But I think we're just players that know how to play the game. And it looks so good because we all know how to play the right way and we know right. how to like move without the ball. We don't all need the ball to be dominant. Like, that's why I feel like, uh, you know, all of us are just like, we play well off each other, you know, when you can, you know, the fundamentals of the game, when you can shoot, dribble, pass. Yeah. I think, you know, it makes it, it makes it look really good together. God, remember when KD loved being on the Warriors? I recorded another podcast with a delirious rant one night after they won, then another one a few weeks later. He was beside himself. This was a man who reached basketball nirvana. It was everything he ever wanted, everything he'd ever hoped for, everything. Kevin Durant got the secret. I actually really believed that by the end of that summer. I would have been on five straight Warriors titles. Well, within 16 months, Durant had one foot out the door and Draymond Green was repeatedly screaming, bitch, at him during a Clippers game. They nearly fought in the locker room. The Warriors were never the same. Well, what happened to them? Why does the secret have a shelf life? Where does it go? That's what my basketball book was about in 2009. That's what this basketball podcast will be about now. I care about guys who Ralph before crucial games and cried on TV shows because a simple replay brought back pain from years ago. I care if someone walked away from a guaranteed title or more because he selfishly wanted to win on his terms. I care if someone sacrificed 20% of his minutes or numbers because that sacrifice made his team better. I care about glowing quotes from yellowed magazines, passionate testimonials from dying teammates. I care about the people who are going to be in this podcast over the next few dozen episodes. I care about the things I witnessed and how they resonated with me. And here's what I ultimately decided. When we measure teams and players against one another in a historical context, the secret matters more than anything else. Of course, something else happened since my book was published in 2009. The NBA itself actually changed in two significant, pretty mind-altering ways. First of all, advanced metrics, I kind of scoffed at them in my book a little bit. Well, they changed basketball. They changed how it was played. They changed how we understood it. In 2009, I believe the 1986 Celtics were the greatest NBA team of all time. Guess how many threes they attempted that season? 393, the whole team. Last season, the Bucks launched 3,134 threes almost eight times as many. No 2018-19 team took less than 2,300 threes. An astonishing 45 NBA players last year attempted more threes than the 1986 Celtics. James Harden attempted 1,059 threes, almost three times as many as Bird and the 86 guys. That's basketball in 2019. I don't know what to tell you. Is it better? Is it worse? Which stars from the past would have thrived now? Which stars from today couldn't have hacked it back then? Can we even compare these two eras? We're going to figure all that out over the next 200,000 episodes or however long this feed is. Here's the second thing that happened. The player empowerment era, which undermined the concept of a team over the course of the 2010s, will probably never have a dynasty again. Just high profile, multi-year runs and that's it. When OKC and LeBron's Heat and KD's Warriors could not stay together, I think that was the turning point. Heading into the 2020s, 
The secret is always rented, never bought. It's a subtle, crucial difference. Think about 1989 Isaiah's Pistons. They stuck together after two gut-wrenching playoff exits. They made one trade, they retooled, they bullied their way to two titles. What would happen on that team in 2018? Here's what would happen. They would have fallen apart faster than a child star from a broken home. The salary cap, free agency, the 24-7 talking head cycle, social media, all that stuff would have brought those fuckers down. They would have been the 2019 Rockets, panic trading Chris Paul and two picks for Russell Westbrook after two straight brutal exits. They would have been the Celtics building around Kyrie and Horford and suddenly building around Kemba and Tatum. Everything happens in warp speed these days. Duran is happy, then he isn't. LeBron is happy, then he isn't. The secret is rented, never bought. And it runs for the hills at the first sign of trouble. I think one final anecdote probably explains everything here. We have to go back 50 years to 1969, right after Russell Celtics won the last of their 11 championships. A crew of friends, employees, owners, and media members poured into Boston's locker room, expecting the typical routine of champagne spraying and jubilant hugs. Russell asked every outsider to leave the locker room for a few minutes. The players wanted to savor the moment with each other, he explained, adding to nobody in particular, quote, we are each other's friends. The room cleared. They spent that precious piece of time celebrating with one another. Lord knows what was said what that moment meant for them. But after they reopened the doors, Russell agreed to a quick interview with ABC's Jack Twyman, who started things out with the typically terrible non-question that we've come to expect in these situations. Well, Bill, this must have been a great win for you. Jack. The rest of the words didn't come. He searched for a way to describe the feeling. He couldn't speak. He rubbed his right hand across his face. Still no words. He finally broke down for a few seconds. Wasn't even crying. Just a man completely overwhelmed by the moment. You know what he looked like? Morgan Freeman during the climactic cornfield scene in the Shawshank Redemption. Remember when Red finished Andy's emotional hope is a good thing letter? He fought off the lump in his throat. He stared ahead with glassy eyes. Couldn't even process what just happened. The moment transcended him. He had nothing left. You could say the same for Bill Russell. The man had reached the highest level anyone can achieve in sports. The perfect blend of sweat and pain and champagne, a weathered appreciation of everything that happened, a unique connection with teammates that he treasured forever. Russell knew the 1969 Celtics were running on fumes, that they were overmatched, that they probably shouldn't have prevailed, but they did. And it happened for reasons that had absolutely nothing to do with basketball. Bill Russell never played another NBA game. He milked a secret for everything it was worth. He captured 11 rings. He retired as the greatest winner in sports history, still is. He clung to that secret until the bitter end. And when his journey was complete, he rubbed his eyes. He fought off tears. He searched for words that never came. By saying nothing, he said everything. Nearly three decades later, a crew from NBA Entertainment interviewed Wilt Chamberlain about his career. The subject of the 1969 finals came up. No way we should have lost to Boston, the Big Dipper muttered in disbelief. Just no way. I mean, I still don't know how we lost to Boston. He laughed self-consciously, finally adding, 
It's a mystery to me. Of course it was. This is the Book of Basketball 2.0. Thanks to State Farm, the presenting sponsor of the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining your home and auto insurance and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected State Farm.